All right, here we go, episode 24. Welcome, everybody. You'll never guess what we're going to do today. We are going to jump around from topic to topic. What a brilliant approach to this podcast. All right, my newest addiction is probably not unhealthy, but it's definitely not healthy. I'll explain. Uh, Open houses. So you go to Redfin, you go to Realtor, you go to Zillow, you go to Trulia, you go to any of the websites that let you know the open houses in your neighborhood or in the area that you desire to buy a home one day, and you just do the old pop-in. Yeah, we'll just browse for a little bit. You could bring the baby. Often they have cookies and bottled water. So you can even make it a tour of desserts around your community. And at this point, we're just putting our feet in the water. You know, we're just getting started with the house hunt. So at this point, none of the homes we're looking at are going to be the one. Because I'm looking for perfection. And I know we should avoid that word perfection, but there's no bigger purchase. This is your home. Right when I park at an open house, I immediately look for the negatives. Let me see the neighbor's yards. Okay, is there an old boat in their driveway? I don't like that. Is there an RV? Dirty on blocks. I don't like that. Do these people look like they'd be nice to Jews if they saw the menorah in the window? Hmm, you got to evaluate everything. And then I go into every open house. Even in the back of my mind, I know I'm not going to buy the place, but I immediately like to think about the renovations I would make. Like I'm Bob Vila. I go, we'd probably have to take down that wall. Uh, You got to expand the bathroom. Pretty sure we'd need a little more garage space. I take it very seriously when I walk into these homes and then I have to remind myself, oh yeah, no, we're not living here. And I look at everybody else at the open house like they're a competitor. You know, you say hello, but you don't really get into friendly small talk. You just say, hello, hello, how are you? Good. You are my enemy today. We're both looking at this house. And every real estate agent is different when they greet you. Some are very warm. Some do not give a shit that you're there. And some seem like they don't know the house either. They don't know the neighborhood. They don't have any information. They were just told to go to a house. So if you ask them anything, they'll give you their card and tell you the right people that they can put you in touch with. Don't you hate that? When you're talking to somebody who should have the information, but they don't, and they want to relay you to another person, you're like, come on, you're the person in the house. How do you not know anything? The worst of the worst was this past Saturday. We went to a home that was listed at $975,000. That should be a nice house. $975,000 should be a nice house. I'm not saying a mansion around these parts, but I'm just saying nice enough. And we pull up and the front yard is pretty nice. Nice entranceway, good looking door. So far, so good. I was ready to fall in love. I was open-minded. And as I walk in, I realize, okay, we're the first. We are the first. And this lady, who I soon found out was a Russian lady, with frizzy hair and a very tight dress. She did not smile at all. She just looked at me, almost looked through me as if I was in the wrong place. And I kind of just gave her a nod like, hi. Hey, just coming, taking a look. You know, that friendly nod. Hi. No smile. And this lady kind of just eyeballed me as I walked around the dining room and the living room and the kitchen. But one thing jumped out at me. It was disgusting. Once again, $975,000 is a lot of money. The place, first of all, smelled 
like somebody had just been cooking Mediterranean food with the windows shut for 50 years. And it just seeped into the walls and the ceiling and the floor. And speaking of the floor, the kitchen had that like shiny linoleum. Looks like it's covered in saran wrap type of floor for mica counters. The rug going all throughout the house was originally a white rug, but it was just kind of tan because it was so dirty. All wood paneling all around the home. Rooms that had secret rooms connected to the rooms. You're like, is this a closet? Is this an office? Why is it connected? What's this pillar doing here? Immediately just started hating it. And I wanted to leave. But my wife, you know, she's a little more pragmatic with how she approaches an open house. She doesn't allow immediate emotions to flood her mind to the point where she goes out of control, like I do. But as I was dragging us out of there in a heartbeat, the Russian lady finally spoke to me. She said, what did you think? I said, yeah, it's a little steep, 975. And my wife said, you think it'll come down a little bit? And she said, who knows? But then she started, uh, you know, tell us the features. They have new roof. Okay, but don't jump on it. We're not going to jump on the roof. We have lots of chandeliers. Most are broken. Okay, so we'd have to replace most of the chandeliers? Exactly. We have many fruit trees outside for your smoothies. You're assuming I drink smoothies? But hey, we got fruit trees outside. That is a nice little feature. And then she says, are you working with somebody already? As if she was auditioning to be our own personal real estate agent. And we said, yeah, yeah, we are. Thanks for your warmth. Goodbye. Farewell. You'll never find a place like this. It's got all of the qualities of a dungeon you're looking for. But that's a microcosm of what we're looking at. 975000 and the place was gross. I couldn't wait to get back out to fresh air. So I'm averaging about three open houses per day on the weekend, which means I need to ease off the pedal a little bit. I should stop refreshing Redfin and Zillow every 20 minutes to see if there's a new house that I will end up hating. It absolutely becomes an obsession, but there's a problem psychologically. It makes you look at what you got and you go, eh, I got one foot out the door. I don't like it anymore. But the truth is, I like what we got. We are renting. Why is there such a stigma against renting? People go, you're just throwing your money away. Oh, you're renting? You're just throwing your money away. That's what they say to us. Not really. We kind of pay the landlord and we get to stay another month. How's that throwing your money away? Sure, we don't own the unit we are in, but it's far from throwing your money away. I, I get it. The American dream is to own property. Well, once you own property, that's the American dream. I guess. I don't really get this thinking anymore. I've rented my whole life. I've loved it. You get amenities. People clean up the area around you. Something breaks. You call the leasing office. Hey, something broke. Come on up. And usually they send a maintenance guy in a timely manner. Actually, just last week. True story. I was changing a diaper. And just above the changing table, I was pulling the old blinds open and it all came crashing down. Now, of course, I had that heroic fatherly moment where I protect the baby, protect the baby, let it all fall on me. And yes, she screamed and then cried a little and realized, wait, nothing happened. Just a loud sound. And that's the point where I go, all right, instead of worrying, like a homeowner would worry about how much did that cost? I just go, yeah, I got to call somebody. 
get some new blinds because these just fell. Probably Fisher Price. And these were some cheap ass blinds, but it's a beautiful luxury to rent. We got to change our way of thinking when it comes to renting. Should probably make that story a little more dramatic. So these blinds are made out of knives and metal. And I hear them come loose. And as they're falling, they're an inch away from my baby's face. And I serve the day at the last minute. And that one tear that escaped her eye, I wiped away. And I said to her, we're going to be fine. Yeah, that story deserves a little more intensity. Because it was an intense moment. But the maintenance guy will be here any moment to replace him. That's my point. Renting's great. I couldn't imagine all of the responsibilities a homeowner has. I don't ever want to mow a lawn. Mow a lawn? And I know environmentalists would say, you should not even have a lawn. Why are you wasting water on real grass? Get some stones. Get the type of landscaping that is low maintenance. Yeah, I plan to. But still, the amount of responsibilities homeowners have that I currently don't is fine with me. I'm not trying to add that many things to the plate lately. As we say, as we say, who says it? I don't know. I guess the good thing about all of this is you learn the real estate business pretty quickly. You learn about pre-approvals, lending, mortgages. You don't pronounce the T. It's not mortgages, just mortgages. You learn about inventory. You learn about disclosures, amenities, districts, buying a house for dummies. Got that book. So it's an educational process. But that's one of the few purchases in life where it does have to feel perfect. You don't have to settle. And go, yeah, hate the house, hate the neighborhood, but we just needed to buy. And hope it appreciates. I will happily wait until I fall in love. Sounds like what marriage should be, right? We're making comparisons today on Here We Go. Just sit back. We're making a lot of comparisons. All right, I had a realization today. My realization was profound. Maybe not. But I realized I have not been to a movie in the movie theater for a full year. That's rare for me because I actually enjoy movies a bunch. But of course, that is proof that I don't enjoy the movie theater experience anymore. The last movie I saw in the theater was The Big Sick. Kumail Nanjiani's biopic, his comedy about himself, and his future wife. It was a Judd Apatow creation. And whatever Judd touches turns to gold, as we know as we've learned. So I saw that movie at the old Regency with my mom, and that was July 2017. A full year has gone by, and I haven't been to the theater, nor have I wanted to go to the theater. I have not been yearning for the theater. And I'm not alone, folks. A study came out that attendance over the year in America throughout all the movie theaters is down, 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 lowest since it's been in 25 years, down about five and a half, six percent. Now, in China and Russia, it's up. It's skyrocketing as they are allowing their citizens to see all of our American movies. Didn't used to be the case. People are flooding the movie theaters and their movie businesses and movie industries over in China and Russia. Two other big powers doing well in America. People still see movies, but we all have our high def flat screen TVs so we can wait a little bit. And have you noticed it's not that long of a wait? When I was a kid, it seemed like from the movie theater to VHS to video was an eternity. Like Big with Tom Hanks. If that was in the theater, it seemed, and who knows if I'm right or wrong, but it seemed as a kid like that would take eight or nine months to land at Flix Video. 
which was the local video store. Everybody had a local video store. And this one even served ice cream back in the day. Video and ice cream. And they had an adult movie room that I wasn't supposed to go into. But guess what? I went in a few times. Oh, yeah. That's a weird little alcove, isn't it? But I digress. So the video stores would get the movies so far after they were in the theaters that you were more compelled to go to the theater. Right now, a new release will probably be on demand in what? A few weeks? A month? Max? You could even pre-order if you have Xfinity or whatever you have. Or you could even pirate it. I'm not promoting it, but how many people there are illegally streaming movies? A lot. And if you Chromecast it, you could put it on your TV from your computer. Aren't I techie? But that's not the number one reason I'm not going to the theater. There's a lot of other reasons. Of course, I have auditory sensitivity. Maybe I made this up, but I feel like it's true. I can hear people chewing their popcorn. I could hear the wrapper on the red vines. I'm totally distracted. I can't focus on the movie if I'm so aware of what's going on around me. Someone kicks my chair in the back. Somebody has a laugh, a cackle that's annoying. You know, not everybody has a pretty decent laugh. There are some bad laughs out there. I get worried if I'm at a comedy and somebody's laughing too hard, too loud at everything. It's not how comedies work. You pick and choose. Not every gag and every punchline is supposed to elicit such a big laugh. What about if you have to pee? They don't pause it at the theater. When you're on your couch, and I know this sounds like a big advertisement for being a hermit. Hey, come be a hermit. But it's true. If you're on your couch, you press pause, you go pee, you fill up your wine glass, you get some more popcorn, you do what you want. And then you come back at your own leisurely pace. In the theater, go to the bathroom, come back. Of course, you're going to be lost, but whoever you're with, if you ask them, what did I miss? That's annoying to the person and the people around you. Another reason why I and many Americans aren't going to the theater as often, most movies aren't good. Can we just say that? What percentage of movies that you see are pretty good? For me, it's about 25%. I'd say one out of four. So 75% of movies are awful. I want to turn off in the first 10 minutes. And maybe it's because I don't love sci-fi, special effects, comic book movies. And maybe I can only handle dumb comedies and dramas and documentaries and biopics. Speaking of biopics, that last movie I saw, The Big Sick, it's Kumail, who plays Dinesh on Silicon Valley, one of the great HBO shows. But it's Dinesh in his own life. But everybody around him is casted with good-looking actors. Not him, though. Of course, he's an actor. He's going to play himself. That's got to be weird, though, for his family and his friends and everybody that he casted. The movie casts, you know, let's be honest, better looking people from his own world. So his real wife has to watch him on screen with this cute actress going, huh, okay, this is our life. I guess it's normal. Howard Stern did that in Private Parts. Private Parts is a really good movie. It's Howard Stern's biopic. It's about his life. He plays himself, but then he casts an actor for his dad and his wife and everybody around him, except Robin. Robin Quivers actually played herself, too. That's kind of awkward, right, for all the real people to watch these movies and go, all right, they casted somebody like that to play me. Interesting. It was pretty good, though, The Big Sick, if you haven't seen it. And it wasn't really a movie that you had to go to the theater to see. How many are? How many movies do you have to line up at the theater in a long line. Maybe the Star Wars of the world, Guardians of the Galaxy, The Avengers, movies like that, Jurassic Park. That gets people to the theater. But if I was like, the big sick, you gotta go. And it was in theaters, no one would take my advice. They'd be like, yeah, I'll wait on that. That's just a Judd Apatow comedy. 
Like the last movie I saw on my couch that was really good, it was Brigsby Bear. Kyle Mooney from Saturday Night Live. The nerdy, long-haired, weird sketch comedian who's kind of brilliant, totally absurd. You don't really know if he's always in a character, who the real Kyle Mooney is. But he wrote and produced and starred in the movie Brigsby Bear. And it was good. They took a very serious premise. You know, he was abducted and only allowed access to one TV channel, which was a TV show that was created just for him to watch. And then, of course, they found his captors, arrested them, and then he's returned to his birth parents. And the movie's really interesting. There are some laughs. It's not a total comedy, but it was good. It was like a solid A-. Brigsby Bear. I remember when it was in the theater, and to myself, I said, I do want to see that, but of course, I'm not going to listen to people chew their popcorn, miss a few scenes because I have a weak bladder and need to pee a lot. And oh yeah, there's a good chance this won't be good. All these factors play into it. How many of you out there are going to the movies once a month? Even the old date night. Date night, movie sounds like a waste of time. Date night, I like to eat and eat and eat and eat. I like that European approach. Just make the meal the whole night. Go slowly with those appetizers. Go slowly with the soup and salad, the entree into the dessert. Go slow throughout the meal. That's all you need. Dinner in a movie, it means you're rushing dinner. And let me tell you, I love the restaurant experience. Love the restaurant experience. You know that feeling when you park and you're walking in with that big old appetite and you're wondering, what am I in the mood for tonight? Let that menu talk to me. However, there are things at a restaurant I do not love. Believe it or not, what a shocker. Shared small plates? That's never fun. Big price tag. You know, usually about 12, 13, 14 bucks. And small plate means there's not going to be a lot of things on this plate. And you're expected to share that. Small plates. I hate that category on a menu. Tapas? People get very excited. The Spanish version of small plates. No, I like big plates. How about we all share big plates? We're adults here. Small plates means we all have to be very tepid around the plate. Oh, there's one left. Do you want it? Oh, maybe we'll split it. There's never enough. Small plates are not fun. And another thing. All right, I'll tone it down a little. But a glass of wine gets marked up to the point where it's a joke. It's a joke. That's how restaurants make their money. You go to the grocery store, what's a bottle of Bogle Zinn? 11 bucks? A glass of that at a restaurant would be about 10. What a markup. Also, how about when the waiter comes over and tells you all of the specials without a price tag? Hey, buddy, I'm going to need to know how much that costs. He'll go on and on and on about something that sounds amazing. The Dungeness Crab, the Sea Bass, the Rack of Lamb... And he'll just describe the glaze, the reduction, the peppercorn sauce. And you're wondering, all right, what are we talking? 36 bucks for this pal? Sorry, I'm not that guy. I don't call waiters pal. What do we call them? Sir? If they're walking by and you need their attention, sir? Sir? Or maybe you develop a rapport and you get their name out of the gates, right? A good waiter's going to drop their name right when they come to your table. Hey, hey, I'm Brian. Anything to drink? And you got to remember that name. You got to remember, all right, that's Brian. Let's develop the rapport. Maybe Brian will come out with a little gift from the chef. Actually, that did happen very recently. We were in San Diego at a restaurant, 
and the waiter comes out, no joke, with two pieces of pineapple seared. That's it. He goes, a little treat from the chef. And he brings out two squares of pineapple seared from a pan. It was terrible. And he actually sat there and watched us take the bite. I'm like, who is your chef? A seven-year-old? Yeah, we're going to pan sear a pineapple. No seasoning. If you want a pineapple, it's best cold, natural, in its raw form. This was supposed to be an upscale place, but a gift bite from a chef should never just be a pineapple seared on a pan. Come on, buddy. Or what about when a waiter takes your food away too soon? And I know they're trying to rush you out because maybe there are people waiting for your table. I get it, but come on. We're going to lick the plate. Don't take it away too soon. I'm going to lick the enchilada sauce. So why don't you back up, huh? Another thing a waiter does, sorry for just studying waiters and waitresses, but is it impressive or annoying when they take your order without writing it down? It's impressive, right? But someone like me will worry, oh, they're going to fuck this up. They stand there and they just nod at you. And they're so professional that they don't have to write anything down. You've seen this guy. He does the long blink confirmation nod. Mm-hmm. I'll have the burger medium rare with cheddar. Could you add avocado to that? And we're going to split the wedge salad. And he's just blinking and nodding. And you're like, should you write any of this down? With a side soup. We'll do clam chowder, no potatoes. So take the potatoes out. Shouldn't you write that down? You just try to catch them. I'll have the Pop-Tart stew. Shouldn't you write that down? I just adjusted your stew. Okay, everything else at a restaurant I love. That's it. My list is done. Shared small plates, glass of wine markup, telling me specials without the cost. Waiter takes away the food too soon. Waiter doesn't write down the order, giving me anxiety that he's going to mess it up. I don't even know if that's a real concern. One thing I do like is the old, do you just want to look at the dessert menu? We already said no. And they go, do you just want to take a look? I don't mind that. A little pushy behavior from a waiter or waitress is totally fine. And by the way, waiter or waitress, I have to do the male, female version. The great Whoopi Goldberg once said, don't call me an actress. I'm an actor. You don't call a doctor a doctress. A female doctor is not a doctress. So call me an actor, not an actress. And I felt, all right, Whoopi, you made a point. I don't know if that's a valid point, but to her it was. So maybe we should just all call them waiters. But here's a big question. In softball... High school softball, let's say, a girl's sport. Is that a second baseman or a second basewoman? Because my daughter's going to be a great second baseman. But do we call her a second basewoman? Or just she plays second base? I don't know. I think the male pronoun has kind of crept into too many settings, if you ask me. Nobody has asked me, actually. Believe it or not, nobody has asked me that. All right, my obsession with the restaurant experience, it's been intensified lately. Because the only two shows I'm watching are Bourdain's Parts Unknown, catching up on all of Anthony Bourdain's episodes. They're all good. They're all really good, really different. I just watched him go to Manila, the Philippines. Holy moly. That was fascinating to see how these people leave their country, leave their families to make some money, and then send all of it back home to take care of their families. How noble. I mean, how sad that they have to do that, but oh my God, the close family ties, and then they return to the Philippines later in life to almost reintroduce themselves to their families. And of course, he got all around the Filipino food, but that was an emotional one. And then we just watched Marseille, town in France, which is not exactly safe, but that's how Bourdain liked to roll. And then the other show I'm watching, 
which is a 15-minute show, perfect for my attention span, comedians and cars getting coffee. And there's new ones on Netflix. So from Bourdain going out to all of these restaurants, eating all of that cheese, to Seinfeld going out to all of these diners, drinking all that coffee, eating all of those eggs, pancakes, French toast, waffles, donuts, and yes, donuts. Did you see the Zach Galifianakis one? Did you see this? They just go into a random donut shop in L.A., and they each plow through six. And then they go to a diner and order another donut. That is the best, when you just have that screw-it attitude towards a donut place. I have to avoid donut places because one is never enough. Two is not really enough. If you have milk and you have the right mindset to just get busy, cheat day, you could easily get through five donuts. And that's what Seinfeld and Galifianakis were doing, plowing through donuts. And now after you watch the show, you need a donut. The cravings that these shows evoke is insane. You know, Bourdain goes to Italy, gets into the, all the prosciutto. My wife and I, we go to Safeway. We try to recreate the charcuterie and cheese platters. It's never good. I mean, it's fine. It's, it's good in the moment, but it's never like Bourdain's. I am highly influenced by subliminal advertising. Even though that's not what Bourdain and Seinfeld are trying to do, the fact that they do their shows around food, it absolutely impacts me. Like today, I'm going to have to find a donut. It's the greatest style of an interview. Let's eat while we talk. The best conversations happen over food, and Seinfeld captured that. Bourdain captured that. Not to say old school interviews, just a person in a desk and another person are awful. Charlie Rose was good. You remember when Charlie Rose was on. But Dave Letterman, the new Netflix show where Letterman just sits down with his weird beard, his hobo scraggly beard with celebrities, it's so boring. It's just on a stage relying on his own celebrity status to get people to watch, but it's boring. He's had Tina Fey, he had Obama, he's had Howard Stern. I can't make it through these. I need them to eat. Eat something. Have a bagel. And maybe I'll tune in. The other things about Bourdain and Seinfeld, they're brutally honest. They don't ever give you a fake laugh. If somebody asks them something, they give you a true, honest answer. And I mean honest answer. Not PC. Not, oh, I hope people will receive this comment well. But just so comfortable and their own skin, at least it seemed with Bourdain, what do I know? But so confident that the way they carry themselves on these shows, you just go, wow, this is you. This is great. I guess the disclaimer is, what do I know? I've never met these guys. All right, a part of me feels the need to get into some sports with the World Cup going on and the Warriors signing of DeMarcus Cousins. But my opinions are so brief. There's nothing profound. World Cup, it's the best event in the world. Not the Olympics, not the Summer Games, not the Winter Games, the World Cup. It's obvious. It's still good, even without the USA. Who the hell needs USA soccer in this tournament? Isn't that kind of nice for once, where we don't need to be a part of it? We can still enjoy watching other countries. Maybe this is teaching us all a lesson. We're not that important. We all feel so important in this country when it comes to our place in other people's affairs. It's great that the World Cup is better than ever without us, without the USA. I don't ever care if the USA is in another World Cup. I think most people agree. It's not exactly a big-time opinion. But it is the best event in the world. The passion in the crowd is insane. And my approach to watching a World Cup game, just cheer for the team that's losing. Give me a close game. Give me extra time. Give me the penalty kicks. I will watch a game go on and on and on if it's good. And then to see the losing team, their players on the field afterwards, that's heart-wrenching, right? Right? The flopping doesn't even bother me. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. 
It's part of the game. Then the Warriors signing DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, yeah, they're too good. It's not interesting. There you go. They're too good. There's nothing to talk about until June 2019 when they're sweeping whoever comes out of the East. There's nothing to talk about. If you have five all-stars in your starting lineup, it's no longer fun. There's zero suspense for 82 fucking games. I'll take it this far. I hope something goes wrong. I don't wish injury, but maybe there'll be some fighting in the locker room, some turmoil. I don't want anybody to get injured, but I don't just want to see a smooth 72-10 and 10 season, waltz through the playoffs, another championship, another parade in Oakland. I've seen it. The league needs to be more competitive. Need a little more parity. Need to spread the talent. All right, there's your sports takes. Hot, hot sports takes. By the way, Ray Ratto said something interesting. Ray freaking Ratto, one of the great columnists in Bay Area history, who used to sit behind my dad and I at Warriors games. That's where they used to put the writers, right behind my dad's seats. He had good seats. I think when he got the tickets, it was the 70s when NBA games were like 11 bucks to sit front row. But Ray Ratto, always a nice guy. You wouldn't guess that because he plays this curmudgeon character. Actually, it's probably not a character. I might even sound like a curmudgeon on this podcast, but I'm not. I'm kind of a nice guy. I'm a nice guy, just like Ray. Ray Ratto kind of reminds me of Nick Canepa, longtime columnist in San Diego. But Ray Ratto, let me get back to the point. He said all of these clicks that people are measuring when it comes to website clicks to see what's the most popular story people are clicking on, He said it actually does not represent what's popular because Ray believed, and this is Ray's point, you can't measure if people are actually reading those articles or it's just what they're being fed. So if ESPN puts up endless NFL stories and we are already accustomed to going to ESPN for our sports news, we'll click on these NFL stories and then halfway through or maybe in the first paragraph in the lead realize, yeah, this is not important. So ESPN is caught in this weird mix of thinking that they are measuring what we like, but what they are feeding us is not necessarily proven to be what we like. So clicks, even though it's quantifiable, Ray Rado said he's not fully convinced that this is the business model that can truly measure what people are interested in. You know, you'll never see a bowling article on ESPN. Does that mean people are not interested in bowling? Okay, people are probably not interested in bowling. And I get it, the NFL is exciting. But if it's endless, endless articles about this guy arrested, this guy domestic violence, this guy DUI, or LeVar Ball, LeVar Ball, LeVar Ball, LeVar Ball, hey, the Ball family, and we just keep clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking, all of these big-time websites are going to go, that's what people need, that's what people want. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe quality content instead of just scintillating gossip would be a nice approach. But I give Ray credit for saying that. He's like, until you measure how many people actually spend time on the pages, and maybe they can, and read the full article, you don't know. It's weird how old the actual printed hard copy newspaper sports section is. Isn't that weird? I now skip it. We get the Sunday IJ, the Marin Independent Journal, which used to be a vibrant newspaper, a vibrant newsroom. I even interned there in 1999. It was great. Tons of employees. And that big brick building off Ignacio. But that's completely empty now. Nobody's working there. They downsized and downsized and downsized, just like every newspaper in America, because people are not consuming the hard copy. But we get it once a week on Sundays. My wife gave me the gift of newspaper in your hands, not just staring at a screen. And I love it. But I don't even open the sports section. Everything, 
everything is already known. Even if it's a column, an opinion column, you could read it the day before. If it's a columnist you like. The scores go to press time before they could even get the final score in a lot of the time. Sports section's sad, and the IJ does their best. They got a couple guys you know, trying to cover high school sports around town, doing their best, assembling you know a bunch of articles from other newspapers, like a mosaic, other people's reports and articles and columns. But I don't even open it. I know all this. As a kid, I would race to the sports section. That's the only section I read. And I would study a box score. Because there weren't a thousand channels for you to watch every single player. I remember studying a box score. How many hits did Kirby Puckett have in Minnesota? How did Joe Carter do in Toronto? I would care. I'd even look at weird things like attendance. Who were the umpires? I would learn the science of breaking down a box score. Nobody's doing that. If anything, I guess I would look at spreads, the grizzled old gambler. But there's really no reason, I hate saying this, to have a hard copy of a sports section. How sad is that? How sad is that? Do I have to end on that? Maybe I do. You're probably getting bored. But I appreciate you tuning in. Put up a review on iTunes if you don't mind, huh? Or not. You can check me out on Twitter if you'd like to follow. Let's get this book club going, okay? You probably need to read Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. If you listen to this podcast, you know that's one of the greatest books I've ever read. Let's share. Let's share our opinions about these books. I just finished Hillbilly Elegy. Anybody read it? By J.D. Vance. Very controversial book. Although I don't really understand the controversy. I know it's out there. I just started The Geography of Bliss by Eric Weiner or Weiner. Last name is spelled W-E-I-N-E-R. Is that Weiner or Weiner? I guess this guy would not choose Weiner, but you don't get to choose your last name. You don't even get to choose the pronunciation. I know you could change it, but Eric Weiner or Weiner, where he says the number one reason people move in America is... No, it's not because they got a new job. It's to find happiness. People actually move and think that's where happiness is. Maybe, but I think we all know happiness is in your head, not the location you're in. That's my Jerry Springer final thought. Happiness is in your head. We'll be back after this. All right, that's episode 24 in the books. I'll talk to you soon.